0: Welcome to the MindBeat Podcast by Effective School Solutions. I'm your host, Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions.
1: And I'm your co-host, Lane Whitaker, Senior Director, Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions.
0: The MindBeat podcast is the definitive source for all topics related to school-based mental health. From sharing best practices to highlighting innovative school districts to keeping track of legislation, MindBeat is the go-to source for educators and administrators looking to implement a mental health care continuum. Together, we can make a difference in school-based mental health care and in the lives of students, families, and educators. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining another episode of the MindBeat podcast. Uh, I'm Duncan Young. I'm the CEO of Effective School Solutions.
1: And I'm Lane Whitaker. I'm Senior Director of Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions.
0: Uh, We have a fantastic guest today, uh, Dr. Dorothy Espelage, who is a a professor, a a distinguished professor, actually, at the School of Education at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She is going to be joining us uh, shortly. uh, uh, My alma mater, UNC Chapel Hill, for those of you watching this on video, you can see my, you know, I'm, I'm honoring both UNC and Dorothy today by by wearing my UNC uh, swag, go Tar Heels. Uh, Lane, how you doing?
1: I'm doing really well today. I'm feeling a little better. I was a little under the weather this week, but uh, I was saying earlier to someone else that I'm, I'm grateful it was just a common cold that that's still out there. Uh, there's so many other things that could have been a lot worse. COVID, RSV, strep, all these other things. So I'll take a little bit of a common cold, you know. I was able to still work and it's just, you know, heavy head and and sinus pressure. You may hear a little nasally tinge to my voice, but um, I'm working through it. I feel today's the the best I felt yet. I feel great.
0: Good. 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 Into the you, seem like, you seem like you get a, yeah, a positive, <laughs> positive energy today. So, I too. Uh, how about you? So, Lane, we were talking. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I do we, we were talking before we started about um, non-dairy milk alternatives, <laughs> yes. and uh, you know, how would you rank your top non-dairy milks? What would be the, the lineup there?
1: I would definitely say oat milk is number one. Oat milk. I would say actually soy milk, which is probably not as popular. But here's why: I'm not a milk person to begin with. Like, I don't drink cow's milk like that. I would never just be like, ooh. Nice. Glass nice frothy of milk. glass of milk. Never, bread, so, never. Yeah. It's, usually, not,
0: it's not nineteen sixty anymore, No,
1: right, so. no. I mean, I was one of those kids, my parents didn't force me to do it. I remember I'd go to some people's houses and they'd have like spaghetti, but also a glass of milk. Yeah, and I'd be like, no I good. can't drink this. Right. I can't drink a whole I wouldn't even drink the milk at the end of the cereal. Like that's not my thing. So then I was also gave birth to a child who has a very serious dairy allergy. He cannot have any type of milk, butter, cheese. So we really didn't have much dairy in the house the last you know 18 years. And so when I was cooking with a dairy alternative, I didn't want like a nut milk, like almonds or something to change the flavor of what I'm cooking. So I found soy milk and oat milk had a similar consistency and very little taste profile. You know, So it didn't alter anything that I was doing. So that, that I would say, and you said three? Maybe cashew milk? Is maybe, that a, is that a thing? Right oh, no, or coconut you? milk. Coconut Excuse me. Forgive me. I, enjoy Forgive me. Coconut I love coconut milk. milk. Yeah. I do love coconut milk. Yeah. I like to make my... I do all kinds of things with coconut milk. Coconut yeah. milk. yeah. Funny.
0: I feel yeah. like the coconut has really seen like a rise in the last decade. Like coconut water didn't really exist before, yeah. I feel like, 2010. And now it's like a you know very refreshing kind of a post-run Beverage things like that. So I would co- agree. It
1: has yeah. a lot of electrolytes and stuff. Yeah. 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 Twenty yeah, yeah. first
0: century is the century of the coconut. I think so. Uh, yeah. Definitely, coconut uh, milk
1: is bomb. I do like that. Or water, it. whatever it is. Coconut products are good <laughs> for me. <laughs> I really enjoy them.
0: All right. Well, why don't we? Why don't we jump in? Uh, I'm really excited to speak with uh, with Dorothy, and, and we'll get started with our top three list for today. Um, so as we do every episode, we're going to get started with uh, our top three, uh, mm-hmm. and this is where one of us is going to share three big ideas in response to a key mental health question. I think our question today is kind of uh, it's kind of it's tangential to, to mental health, and it's just the top three general hurdles teens face in in schools. And I'll, I'll kind of share a perspective on this. I've got I've got three girls ranging uh, you know in age from. Uh, 10 to 17. So my my thoughts answers are probably influenced, you know, in part kind of by by their experience, but also looking at the research and I think some of the recent articles that we've seen about you know where are teens right now in this really unique period in our society coming out of uh, COVID and some of the unique challenges that they're that they're facing. So the the first thing I'd really point to hurdle number one would be kind of what I would think of as lost socialization reps with with an athlete you always talk about like getting repetitions, like any developing any skill, you, you need practice. And I think when it comes to social stuff and socialization, um, how to interact with each other, uh, how to kind of resolve conflict, I think a lot of teens have just lost reps during the pandemic. I mean, when school was shut down for a year, or two, and I think we, we saw this with a lot of the student populations that we were serving. Uh, probably in the fall of 2021 is where it was most prominent. Schools had been shut down for, you know, what, probably 18 months kind of at that point, 15, 16 months at that point. Um, and what we saw kind of back during that fall of 2021 was a lot of conflict, a lot of in- increased disciplinary challenges, increased fighting, uh, kind of between between students and I think a lot of that is a function of these kind of lost socialization time that sure. that students had um, even regression I would say for sure for yeah. sure now I think they we're in this kind of like rebuilding phase we got these deficits that have been established and I think students and young people are having to kind of re- rebuild those um the second thing I, I I noted was you know I think I think with some of our students it's gonna be kind of challenges leaving the nest it's attachment kind of with their you know uh, you know uh, with their with their parents kind of with their caregivers and and you know, I think if you, if you think about the idea that during COVID, a lot of families were in this hermetically sealed bubble. Where you are in a high-stress environment, and your main support system was kind of like your 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 parents, your siblings, that that family unit. I think this is probably an ancillary to the lost socialization reps. I think there's going to be kind of like you know probably as some kids go off for their next step, whether that's college or something else, you could potentially see you know some you know attachment challenges and challenges kind of like going out and kind of uh, 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 cleaving. I think is the correct mm-hmm. like you know uh, mm-hmm. from uh, your parents yeah, the yeah. kind of you know developmental term kind of on mm-hmm. that. So that be interesting to take a, take a look at kind of as well. And then I, I think we'd be remiss on this uh, if we didn't mention as my third item here, just the, the challenges with social media, particularly mm-hmm. kind of self-regulating with respect to, um, you know, social media. I'm, I'm a You know, big believer that we are with social media, probably, you know, the research to social media right now feels like probably where the research around like cigarettes was in like 1960, where you (laughs) kind of knew that they were bad for you, but you didn't really know how bad. And it was probably going to be another, you know, five to 10 years before kind of like you got better regulation around a lot of this. It just feels like we're in early stages on this from a regulatory uh, standpoint and just a research standpoint in terms of understanding the impact that we're having kind of on the brains of, of young people. And I see this with my my own kids and I see it with myself, candidly. I mean, you know, being able to self-regulate and give your brain kind of space to breathe and to, to uh, you know, not be in front of a, a device kind of 24-7 or whatever the number of hours are that you're you're kind of awake during the day, 18-7, right. I guess, depending on how much sleep you, you get. I think that's going to be the third big hurdle, is the third big hurdle with young people that I, I point to. Anything? come to mind for
1: you well, yeah it's actually a great segue into the uh the article we're about to go over as well but but for sure I think we talked about this not long ago I, I felt that too I'm you know I'm a real extrovert and during the pandemic I started to get very comfortable spending time by myself a lot of alone time and when I'm on my phone it's amazing how the time passes you're like I was just scrolling for how long it was an hour and you can't like where did that time go um it's very like vapid um so yeah no i, I think that it, social media presents so many different problems and isolation issues for our students and um and our ki- our children and then can i go ahead and then and segue into this article because this go is for it. really really timely So the article that I wanted to bring up today is called Social Media Often Makes Teens Feel Even More Alone. So you see that that really just speaks to what you were just talking about. So apparently in a study of the Journal of Adolescence, researchers found that the psychological well-being of adults worldwide began to decline after 2012. Well, what happened around that time, around 09, 2010, we started to get smartphones and a little bit after that, that's when social media really the birth of social media. So, you know, apparently the the dopamine, the connection with dopamine and getting likes on social media um, and for young people, that is um, much worse. The feeling of you no know, one. I just posted something. There was not enough likes or comparing it to somebody else's post can really wreak havoc on their self-esteem. So basically, the article was saying it creates feelings of isolation and loneliness, um, even though a lot of kids seek it out as a way to be more connected, which is ironic. So what I appreciate about this article, it wasn't all doom and gloom. They gave some solid tips to uh, to help students kind of navigate this. So they said the first one was have an open dialogue about screen time and social media usage. So you need to be talking to your kids more about how much time are you spending on there? What are you looking at? Um, Help them kind of discern and navigate some of the things that they're seeing on their talk and process those things um, help them evaluate how they use social media you know is it just for fun or is it to get self-esteem what am i getting out of this what are my goals for using social media you know nowadays you have some kids who are influencers so maybe that's one of their reasons um, but then help educate them uh, be a good example you know as we talk about our kids with phones We might be a little addicted ourselves and I, um, you know, am smiling. It's, I see that very tongue in cheek might be, (laughs) it's not really the word we are. We're all addicted to our phones. I have to admit, I I definitely go to bed with mine as well. Um, so we need to be a good example for our kids and showing them how to, um, you know, be good stewards and, and, you know, spend a reasonable amount of time, do what you have to do and get off and go do other things, go outside, go be with nature, go talk to real people. Um, and then set practical time limits and goals. So I thought that that was nice that, you know, uh, while the article was informative, it can leave you feeling really depressed, a little despondent about the state of affairs. So I do appreciate those tips they give to help, um, you know, make it a little bit better for our kids, you know, dealing with social media, and navigating that world.
0: Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be interesting. I feel like I have seen a lot of articles recently on both federal and state level regulatory things that are yeah. that are that are going to be taking place here. I think the challenge here, though, is I like I'm concerned that like this is not a problem you can legislate away. Right. I'm not yeah. sure there's a you know, it's so immersive. Uh, mm-hmm. Technology is so infused in every aspect of what we do. And it's really positive. We don't want to go back to like, you know, living in like the 1850s and, sure. and kind of, you know, it, there's you know, uh, it's obviously intrinsically. You know, kind of, kind of in there. What I, what I'm really interested in, in seeing is kind of like, what is the trajectory going to be with our young people? What's the trajectory with our society? And what are the implications? Right. All the second order effects here that could be taking place in terms of how we deal with to deal with each other as a society? What our political discourse looks like, right? right. Because if we're all right. kind of in our little like echo chamber, kind of, of of our of our phones, is it more difficult to find common ground with folks who come from different backgrounds and might believe different things than we than we kind of believe? And um, I don't know. Know, it, it seems like in some ways we, uh, uh, you know, there's all these uh, uh, kind of ancillary effects that we've got to. Uh pay attention to and sure. uh these are really challenging issues uh so sure. uh, we could have a whole whole separate conversation and maybe some yeah. future guests talking about solutions on, on some of these so.
1: things you did hear though i think um i don't want to misspeak but i think it's portland a, a, a school district in portland is suing all the so me- social media outlets as well they're saying that it's causing all kinds of problems with mental health in their schools um I agree. I, I know that one program I worked at, my principal just said, we're not doing phones anymore. And so we collected them at the front door. Kids were able to get them. They were like in envelopes on the way out. Uh, it was funny. Our office manager said she'd hear all the ringing and the dinging and the notifications the all day in the envelopes. But they weren't fighting because of something they just read on social media that this girl posted or that that person posted right. or whatever. And so it, it just made for much more uh, for an environment, much more conducive to learning rather than worrying about what's on my phone. And I do see that as we're, we coach across the country, some, like individual teachers will say, I'm not going to do it. But I have I've yet to see a district or even a whole school that just says we're not doing that anymore. And I I don't know what the fear is. There may be the fear of backlash from parents, but I just feel like that's one place where the phones don't belong. If we can get our kids to um, get rid of the phones during school time, and then maybe you have a little bit more chance of having parents regulate their usage when they're home.
0: All I can think about as you say that is the poor office manager who has to listen to the hundreds of phones every day. Exactly. I, I feel like, you know, the mental health of all the students has improved and her mental health is like declined.
1: Right.
0: Him, her, you know, her, his right. or her mental health is declined kind of precipitously. She would beg during them that, to turn it on
1: silent. Like, please yeah. put it on silent. Got it. Got it. Got <laughs> it. I think that was their punishment. Oh no, you're going to, I'm going to find the most annoying song to play or something Oh my gosh. <laughs> because you took <tipped> my phone. Because <laughs> it's not
0: just a ring. It's like the little guitar riff. All know, of that. Like,
1: uh...
0: <laughs> all right. Well, let, let's, let's get into our guests. I'm really excited to introduce uh, our guest today, uh, Dr. Dorothy Espelage. She is the William C. Friday Distinguished Professor of Education at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, Dorothy's research focuses on transplanting empirical findings into prevention and intervention programming. She's the recipient of the APA, APA Lifetime Achievement Award in Prevention Science, the 2016 APA Award for Distinguished Contributions to Research and Public Policy, and is a fellow of APS, APA, and AERA. Uh, She is a research machine. She's an elevated member of the research in public policy, a fellow of the APS, the APA, the AERA, an elected member of the National Academy of Education. She has authored incredibly over 300 peer-reviewed articles. 80 book chapters on bullying, homophobic teasing, sexual harassment, dating violence, and gang violence. She is known as a national expert in a lot of areas. I would say bullying is uh, really one of the the areas that she is uh, really looked upon as kind of one of the foremost experts in uh, academia. And we are incredibly excited and honored to have Dorothy with with us today. Welcome, Dorothy. Hi,
1: Dorothy. Thank you for having me. Hi. So Dorothy, tell our listeners a little bit more about your role and what the focus of your specific areas of research are.
2: Yeah. So um, for which is amazing to say for 25 years, a quarter of a century, I've studied bullying in K through 12 settings, um, but more recently extending that to higher ed, too. So I would say K to 16. Um, and I started this work in the early 90s. So you were talking about, you know, what was happening in the early 90s, early 90s email came out. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was studied bullying in the context of face to face. And for the last 25 years, we've tried to identify, you know, who it is. who's engaging in the bullying, um, who are the likely targets of this behavior. Um, At that time, in 91, when I started this work, there were three articles written on bullying um, out of the United States, and that was largely in special ed. So it wasn't, it was at that time, we just saw it as a rites of passage. It was just part of growing up. I had pushback even trying to publish articles on bullying. I was like, isn't this just aggression? Isn't this just what makes boys go grow into men? So there was a good decade where there was just a resistance in this country. I wasn't invited to keynote. No one had bullying as their topic in these conferences. Um, and then slowly, we started to add to the research literature such that there's almost like 5,000 articles. We've contributed 300 of those, right? Um, that really pointed to the detrimental mental health um, outcomes associated with both those kids that engage in bullying, are what we call perpetrators sometimes, or those that are the victims, but also those kids standing around watching it, the mm-hmm. bystanders who we want to move to be allies. Um, and as we continued to do these studies, we also started to identify those populations, those kiddos with social identities that were at the most risk. So gender and sexual minority youth, students with disabilities, more recent undocumented or Asian students, if you want to put it in the, the COVID framework. And so we just so there's no argument now. Um, the meta analysis and the research is very clear that that there are serious short and long term outcomes. Um, for bullying involvement for all of those involved. Um, And so we were just able to convince the federal government to put some money behind preventing this and have done a number of serious, um, large randomized clinical trials to evaluate social emotional learning and peer led programs and also leveraging technology too. So that's a lot. I'll stop there because again, it was been a quarter of a century of work. So it's a lot to talk about in 30 minutes.
1: Do, Do you think that the, we were just talking about social media and I know there's so much bullying that goes on, Online, Do you think that that's also part of what made this area of research, um, you know, something that people want to talk about now?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You have, we have to think about for the longest time we have argued in our research and we show that the face-to-face bullying, at least pre-COVID face-to-face bullying was really highly associated with mean and cruel behavior when kids engage with social media. So we knew that there was a connection. So we still argued to schools like, please, it's not all just the technology. These kids also need to have social skills, instruction, life skills, social, emotional learning, those so that they can interact to reduce. The likelihood that they would be mean and cruel in social media. Now, what we from COVID, we know from the national data that face-to-face bullying went down because there wasn't a lot of face-to-face instruction and interaction, but cyberbullying and hate and cruel behavior spiked during and during COVID, um, both for adults and kids. And so when I heard you talking about social media, I think it is going to be critical that we um, continue to have congressional briefings with the leaders of the social media frame, the framework. There, um, hold them accountable for implementing safe, you know, and precautions. I'm on the advisory board for TikTok, so I get to see the inner workings of what even TikTok is doing, which I can't talk much about, um, um, which is fascinating. To watch the news and know what I know um, and know what people are not telling you about TikTok. Um, and TikTok, and I've worked with Facebook and Inspire Ed and others, um, are really trying as much as they can um, to educate parents, educate kiddos about um, creating safe spaces. Lots more work that needs to be done. Um, You can only have so many moderators on these social media outlets and things get through. And then unfortunately, some things get through that can damage kids and their perceptions and their self-esteem, as you said. Uh, One example is we have an increase in eating disorders. I studied eating disorders 30 years ago, right? And then we just, we had that under control. Certainly, there were still body image issues, but full-blown eating disorders really went down. And now we see a spike because we have communities on these social medias that are promoting this type of behavior. It's, you know, pro-anorexia, for example. That wasn't new to websites but now because the TikTok and other platforms are just so fast and they can't keep up with what's on there the messaging gets to the kids quickly so that's just one example where we're going to really have to track what it's like for kids and their brain development as they interact with this technology
0: so dorothy what do you what do you see as the linkage between uh, what does the research indicate in terms of the linkage between bullying and mental health? And I guess you could look at it two ways, right? Is there, you know, is the presence or absence of a mental health challenge more likely to lead someone to bully, to be a perpetrator? And then, and then I think there's the probably more obvious piece, which is kind of the mental health, you know, linkages between being a, a victim of bullying. But could you talk about, like, what the research indicates
2: maybe on both of those? Yeah, absolutely. So we do what's called meta-analysis, right? So to summarize the extent to which, so that question of if you're victimized through bullying, does that impact your mental health? The best way to answer that is to summarize a body of literature. So not not just one article, um, but summarizing, it's kind of the gold standard. And so um, what we find there is that if you are chronically victimized, where that goes on for a long time and it's not addressed through prevention or intervention... 30 years down the road, you're more likely to have a major depressive disorder as an adult right? Um, and so, we find that very similar depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, even within the few months of being victimized as a cause for concern. Now, there's not a causal relationship. So, bullying, victimization itself um, doesn't cause you to be depressed or anxious. But what it does is it contributes to a sense of isolation, lower self-esteem, which then fosters depression and anxiety. And because we have such a crisis, um, and the lack of school-based, mental health, and with the exception of some of the work that you're doing, um, one that's unaddressed, that depression and anxiety, um, it exacerbates and unfortunately, we have the highest rates of suicide um, attempts and death by suicide in this country at this point. What's interesting about those kids that engage in or the perpetrators of it is that they really don't have long term impacts. We haven't studied them as much, but it doesn't look like that depression and anxiety holds for those perpetrators.
0: Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that that's uh, that's that's um, really interesting. I mean, if you think about it, I, I kind of think of being a victim of bullying as a form of an adverse childhood experience. Right. And we know all the research and linkage between, you know, aces and and negative uh, effects later in life, including kind of kind of mental health challenges. Is that the right way to, to think about it?
2: Absolutely, Duncan. So David Finkelhor out of the University of New Hampshire has proposed for the last decade that bullying, victimization and other forms of victim- intimate partner violence and other. Um, so bullying itself should be an adverse childhood experience. So I think you're going to start seeing that as one of those aces. Got it. Yep. So
1: what would you say is the state of school-based mental health today then? Uh, considering, you know, all of these different issues, you've got social media, you've got the bullying, you've got, um, you know, the the recent pandemic, the isolation, what would, what is your estimation of the state of mental health in schools?
2: Yeah recent research that came, that has come out even in the last week is indicating that the mental health uh concerns associated with children and adolescents is it's uh, problematic, extremely problematic. Um, And they also what we know is that the school-based mental health services differ across, as you know, in the work that you do, districts, states. Um, Yes, we have lots of funding from the federal government to address this, but how are we going to implement that and integrate with all the other programs that are happening in the schools is the big question.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I think getting to a common definition of what good looks like. It's kind of the Wild West out there in terms of, like, you talk to 10 different districts, you're going to get 10 different, you know, answers often of kind of like, you know, what does my tiered systems of support look like versus your tiered systems of support, kind of, et cetera.
2: Absolutely. But I think that, you know, the research is pretty clear that if you have school based mental health um, on campus in the schools so that you break down the barrier of access um, that we have lower depression and anxiety and lower suicidality. I mean, the biggest issue is, one, screening, as you know, which is a challenge because people are very weary about screening. Because what if they screen in, you know, half of their kiddos? What are they then going to do? Sometimes parents don't want their child screened either. They feel that it's not the school's issue to do that. And then third, if you do, they screen in. How do you get them services when we have a mental health crisis across the board as far as getting... Um, to practitioners in the field.
1: And and what about addressing the mental health of the bully or the perpetrator? Because, you know, we know hurt people hurt people, right? So what about their mental health? I know that we don't always seem to have a lot of compassion for the bully, but... You know, I remember my son had an issue with bullying in kindergarten, and I used to tell him that, well, hurt people hurt people, like have compassion for this person, even though it it feels tough. They are really going through something. So how can we support the bullies to prevent them or to, you know, help them change those behaviors?
2: Yeah, absolutely. We have to get to the bottom of that behavior, right? So anybody that's a good psychologist or teacher and has been well trained understands that that's a signal. They're they're sending you information that something's happening. Um, And in the beginning of this research, we were very punitive. We had three strikes are out. Bullies were expelled and suspended. um, And then we realized that wait a minute, they actually are mimicking behavior that they see at home, or they're being bullied by a sibling, and they're playing that out, or they literally just don't have the anger management, emotion regulation skills that they need.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think so, that, that they're in the fight response of your stress response. You know, bullying is considered one of the, uh, you're in the fight stress response. Um, so I don't know. I do have, I know some bullying can be so terrible, but I do have compassion for the perpetrator because what, what has happened to them to make it, you know, what we, you know, we talk about all the time and the trauma tuned model or trauma informed practices is about what happened to you, not what's wrong with you. So I do you know, want to support the person who is bullying too, to make it stop for them as well.
2: Oh, absolutely. And we find that actually um, many of our bully perpetrators have experienced high rates of the ACEs that you spoke to, but also domestic violence and intimate partner violence and the adults in their um, homes. So it is, it's a cycle. Well, so then what are some of the
1: things that you think school districts can do to, or put in place when it comes to anti-bullying initiatives? You know, based on your research, what would be the most effective way to um, for school districts to approach this?
2: Yeah, so we've also done meta-analysis to look at the components of bullying prevention programs that are the most helpful. Involving parents, which we rarely do, uh, will get go a long way. And it's beyond just sending a letter home, but actually bringing them into the school Apologize, I have dogs that are kind of going wild on me here. So it's a dog friendly (laughs) podcast. Yes.
0: Okay. (laughs) We're the it might be official podcast of dogs, right? So dogs everywhere, (laughs) thousands of dogs listening to this as you speak. I know, I
2: know, it's COVID dogs too. Sorry, Um, and so. Yeah. So, you know, involving parents, I think that is really where the huge gap is. We also know that when you um, have prevention programs that get the kids to know one another, interact and really get to know one another, it's really hard to victimize and bully somebody that you ultimately know. Mm. And so one example is the good behavior game, which is simply just putting kids together to interact and solve problems um, together and get to know one another can not only reduce bullying in the long term, but actually reduces a lot of other mental health problems as we grow into adulthood um, and actually we have even better careers. So I think we have identified um, some key components, parental involvement, improving the school climate, um, social emotional learning, which is a term that, you know, I'm supposed to say life skills now, because it's a hot, you know, hot button issue. Um, but the bottom line is giving kids skills to manage conflicts such that they do not escalate to the form of bullying um, is critical. Um, i have to tell you in 25 years uh, i've probably had 75 papers that showed school connectedness and school climate um, really is it's critical to one, reducing bullying in a school, but also reducing the adverse effects when bullying does occur. So we're not going to eradicate bullying. It is part of just the, the fabric. We're hierarchical. There's popular kids and non-popular kids, and that's how it's going to be. There's some kids that gain their popularity through bullying and maintain that. Um, so I think that we just need to recognize that it's going to be there, but we wanna minimize the the very distressing damage that it can cause uh, for some kiddos. And recognize also that um, you have kids, right? And you know that there are some kids that are more sensitive than others to the same scenario and recognizing that there's not a one size fit all. You could tell your one daughter to you know, just brush it off and she may, your other daughter may be very sensitive and has to really talk this through um, and really work on some damage that might be happening when there's some bullying or relational aggression or those types of things. Um, there's, there's not a um, silver bullet, there's just not. Right. And it has right. to be at all levels, yeah.
1: Do you did your research show anything about the benefit of maybe mindfulness uh, or emotional regulation as a tool? Because when we are really a, a you know part of especially for myself in my position, part of our coaching is really to help implement resets or um, you know self regulation practices throughout the day. And a lot of those studies have shown that it builds compassion, empathy in students, um, just sort of that more likely to respond rather than react. So does that have any um, effect on? Bullying? Or did your research look at mindfulness at all as a, as a solution?
2: Yeah. So there are a number of meta-analyses out there, and we currently have a, a grant from the um, AIR Foundation that is actually showing that mindfulness, which is broadly defined, but let's just say breathing exercises or resetting or uh, growth mindset, those types of things, whatever the procedures are. Huge results as far as reducing mental health challenges. And it looks as if reducing bullying and other forms of aggression and conflict. Um, And certainly I can share those with you. It's amazing how many mindful interventions are being used. And it's in K through 12 settings, as well as we're using it at UNC Chapel Hill through our sources of strength training, which is really about identifying those moments that um, are challenging for you and doing simple things Mm -hmm. to reset. Um, which we all do, right? Whether it's closing your eyes and just counting and kids say this. So we're developing a text messaging program now called bully down for middle school kids. And we're learning from the middle school kids exactly how they regulate. Um, And they talk about the counting and they talk about um, art and journaling and self-compassion journaling. And so taking a lot of what we know from, I would say public health and the medical Of chronic conditions and drilling it down to the K through 12 and giving kids those life skills early as soon as possible, right? Pre K and continually training them to have those tools in their toolbox to use because life is going to present challenges over and over again. And we can't, we need to have that, the ability to. To regulate, yeah, when, kind of building right?
0: those, those resiliency skills, kind of over mm. over time. So absolutely. So, so Dorothy, if we kind of raise up a level, what do you you know? You've been at a couple of different uh, different academic uh, institutions, I think more than a couple over the course of your your uh, your career. When you what do you see as the role of academia when it comes to achieving kind of more systemic change in school based mental health? Do you have examples of kind of good kind of partnerships between academia and kind of? community based organizations the the kind of for profit sector like what does good look like when it comes to kind of academia really moving the needle and translating research into practice
2: yeah, so I, I've lived my life um, uh, defending the ways in which I engage with community and schools. Um, I remember I was at the University of Illinois for 20 years, and they were like, you're never in your office. Said, my office is the elementary schools and the middle schools and the superintendent's office or the nonprofit that's doing the bullying prevention down the street. I think we owe it to society to get out of our offices, especially in this space. There's a lot of academics that just want to sit in their office, analyze data, and write their their journal articles. Um, but for me, if we really want want to have a change, especially in the space of bullying prevention, where social media is implicated so much that we have to partner. We have to partner with parent groups. We have to partner with uh, nonprofits um, and for-profits that are on the Hill lobbying, right? Um, And so, what I try to do and has been my goal for 25 years is, yes, do the research, do the solid research that that we can defend, do the longitudinal studies, do the meta-analysis, do the rigorous randomized clinical trials, but then also spend the time to disseminate that beyond journal articles, right? Um, This blog is an example. I'm pretty sure there's more people listening to this than those that have read my 300 articles, right? And that's encouraging to me. Um, And working with, uh, for example, I've just invited to Paris, rough rough invitation, to work with UNESCO and the UN to think about reevaluating the definition of bullying in light of that bullying is happening in social media, right? So Academics need to get out of their offices. They also need to be flexible. For example, we have a youth suicide crisis in the state of North Carolina, and we are partnering to go out and test sources of strength in 10 high schools to see if we can uh, get it to stick there in North Carolina but I can't do a randomized control trial. I'm not going to withhold, you know, the intervention for the schools. Right. right. So, right. So you have to go beyond these ethical,
0: these ethical issues that kind of get into the research and yep.
2: Absolutely. Um, And so I just presented to Nickelodeon, um, a parent big parent group and the employees of Nickelodeon and Paramount Plus. I'm working with Disney to bring and Special Olympics to bring um, kiddos to talk to us about their experiences of bullying, because I'm now 54 years old and middle school was a long time ago for me. And thank goodness there were no cell phones Um, or I might not be in the position I'm in right now. Right. So I think that, you know, I don't do my work without that youth voice without the parent voice Um, and so but that's you've got you also have to be productive right because you have to get tenure and you often have to do what the university wants you to do but i think being at the state university like unc chapel hill which is a place that values public engagement that i have the room to do that um, because it's academics are not going to solve this problem. We haven't, sure. it's been 25 right. years, right? right? We're right. only reducing bullying by 20%. Right. We have to involve everybody in the socio-ecology. Yeah. There's and gotta be academia and a
0: lever that actually kind of like leads to implementation kind of out in the, you know, out in, out in the, out in our, out in our school. So I love this idea that you're really kind of bridging the, the straddling the, the gap between kind of practitioner and, and, and researcher. I, I love that, that mindset that you're bringing to the table on this.
2: Absolutely, yeah.
0: So Dorothy, I know that you are planning kind of a, a big event regarding kind of bullying. Do you want to talk a little bit of, about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we are we were selected to host the World Anti-Bullying Forum, um, and that will bring um, at this point. Uh, researchers, practitioners, uh, social media giants, um, to Raleigh, North Carolina, October 25th through the 27th. Um, we will have upwards of 800 to 1000 slots. If people would like to register, um, we're bringing, we're working with Disney, we're working with special Olympics. We really want to bring all of our colleagues from across the world, the globe to talk about what, how they're tackling bullying. To be honest, some of our European colleagues are doing a much better job, especially around preventing cyberbullying than we are. Um, and we really need to figure out how that we can learn from them and they can learn from us. It's the first time that it's been hosted in the United States. So we're excited and very excited that UNC Chapel Hill is supporting this endeavor um, in so many ways. Um, and so, yeah, so we're just excited to bring the best research, some of the best prevention and intervention to Raleigh and, and show the world what we're doing. We have six keynotes that represent six continents. Um, and so, yeah, so excited. Lots of work not a conference planner but i'm 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 doing my best but
0: you stayed at a holiday in express last night right so you <laughs> kind of got the uh so 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 what i mean do you, you're so when, when i hear world anti-bullying forum it makes me immediately think of like how does the u.s kind of stack up to the rest of the world in in bullying and it, are the challenges that we're experiencing right now kind of like the same or different as the challenges that are being experienced in other countries
2: uh, well, I would say that we're we're not doing very well. I, when you look at the meta analysis, it looks as if the United States, along with Canada, um, have reduced bullying the less the the least in compared to other countries. So we've reduced bullying in this country by ten percent. Other countries. Have reduced it by twenty to fifty percent. Now, part of the problem is where it's very where the prevention programs are very successful uh, are small countries, um, and so you know when they say oh this program Kiva works in Finland or Norway, I'm like okay, well right. that's like one state in yeah. the United yeah. States, right? So we have to right. figure out that's
0: like that's like Vermont, right? Yeah. So right.
2: Right. So it's a challenge. It's particularly a challenge now in the political climate. Um, And so we're seeing an uptake in the national data of bullying and victimization of gender and sexual directed toward gender and sexual minority youth, as well as racialized bullying, uh, what we call identity-based bullying. So at the World anti bullying Forum, we're really going to talk about identity-based bullying or bias-based bullying, which has not been a topic covered um, by that group, um, by that forum. So we're excited by that. Uh, We're seeing also a lot of association between bullying and hate speech. And so we're, we're bringing the Germans in to talk about their hate speech interventions, that they're doing some really, really great work. Um, I would say the Italians probably have a, the best intervention on cyberbullying. And it's because they really developed their cyberbullying interventions based on solid recent research versus us trying to take old anti-bullying prevention programs and fit it into the social media context that we have. And we've failed. Got
1: it. Mm. Got it. Well, that is really impressive work. I'm so excited for your conference. I hope that goes amazingly well for you. Um, I have to say I'm the reset lady here at ESS. And so uh, one of our big goals is to uh, help districts Become more regulated and having those skills, you know, embedded throughout their school day. So, your comments on the um, application of meditation as a as a uh, means to end bullying, I fully support and get behind. It's very validating for our work. Having said that, being that I am the reset lady, I have to ask, uh, what is your go to uh, for your mental health? What are your resets? How do you? What's in your mental health toolkit? Um, is it breathing? Is it yoga? Running? Affirmations? What What does it for
2: you? Um, it's orange theory. So I don't know if you've done yeah, orange yeah, theory, sure. right?
1: Yeah.
2: I'm not familiar. What's orange theory. It's like a, like a fitness,
0: yeah. uh, circuit type of thing. It's a chain, right? So. Oh
2: yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So you, uh, run row. I don't row. I stride and the weight room and there's just really good music. And every minute you're in the orange, you get a splat and I do that. But I also, I'm, I'm a hot yoga person and uh, I meditate too. and TikTok. A little bit of TikTok. A little there bit you t- yeah.
1: Well you're on the board, so we'll allow it. Yeah, you're doing it's for it's for research purposes, <laughs> exactly. right? So it is. Yeah. That's what I call yeah. quality quality yeah. <laughs> it control. Good
2: food recipes too.
1: So <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Dorothy. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you today. And we're really excited to hear about all the work that you're doing. And can't wait to see how it's uh, the wide-reaching impact that it's going to have, especially being research-based. One of the things I love about Brene Brown, too, is that all of her work is research-based, which is, uh, makes a big difference.
0: Dorothy, so Absolutely. great to see you again. Thank you so much you for did. being with us. Real, really an honor and a privilege, and just congratulations on all the incredibly impactful work that you're doing. And good luck with all of the the initiatives, including the World Anti Bullying Forum. Sounds incredibly exciting. Appreciate
2: it. Um, Thanks again for right. being with Take us. Take care. So Have a great much. Day. Thank you. Bye.
0: So Elaine, uh, let's let's wrap up. What uh, what inspired you uh, this week?
1: Uh, I actually was really inspired by, I got an email the other day from one of our coaches out in California, who's doing amazing work uh, with resets, speaking of the resets. And uh, in fact, I was out there with her um, back in November and we were talking about resets with this particular teacher. And so now she sent me an email of a picture of like a reset wheel that this teacher made. So it is um, like a large Ferris wheel looking kind of contraption that she's put in her classroom. And there's a little note on each part of the wheel with a different reset. So as kids become escalated and they're looking for an emotional regulation practice, they can just pick from the wheel, spin the wheel and pick the right reset for you. So I just applaud the creativity of our educators. I, I say all the time, if you give um, an assignment to an educator, they're going to get so creative with ways to accomplish that task and um, it never ceases to amaze me. So uh, kudos to this to this teacher out in California. Uh, I thought the reset wheel is wonderful. I send it out to our whole team. I hope that it inspires other uh, coaches that we're working with, other champions in the schools that we work with, to um, to come up with similar things or to feel free to use this tool created by this teacher. So that inspired me that so we're all going to continue to learn how to reset to our greatness, emotional regulation skills. That, that I know that excites me. That's
0: great. no thanks for it thanks for sharing. too. So, yeah, so 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 for me, I had a chance to be in Los Angeles this week um, at a National Governors Association convening mm-hmm. on youth mental health. And so the way this works, uh, every year a governor is appointed as the chair of the NGA. This year it's Governor Murphy from New Jersey, where uh, where we are based, and the the chair has the. Uh, ability to choose a theme for uh, his or her tenureship as mm-hmm. the NGA chair, and Governor Murphy have uh, identified youth mental health, and so he and the First Lady were out there. Uh, Governor Polis from Colorado was out there, and you had this incredible group of you know probably fifty or sixty kind of thought leaders in the. Youth mental health space, and also in the maternal and infant health space, which is mm-hmm. the is, is the first lady's kind of you know big focus uh, initiative. But the theme this week was stigma, and so it was really really interesting to hear uh, a lot of comments about you know programmatically, how do we kind of reduce stigma? How do we how do we talk about uh, mental health challenges and ways mm-hmm. that kind of you know reduce stigma? One of the things that stuck with me, they had a uh, individual who is a psychological anthropologist, yeah. and his big. His big takeaway was that by calling what's occurring right now a youth mental health crisis, Mm -hmm. it actually almost feeds into a sense of hopelessness, which like Mm -hmm. psychologically turns people off and engaging with the problem. So when we talk Mm -hmm. about, you know, his advice instead of talking about this is a youth mental health crisis is to frame it a little bit more as kind of like an opportunity to improve the mental health of young people. So it's a subtle, it's a subtle shift, but one that I guess, if you're a psychological anthropologist, the research, you know, (laughs) tells you to, uh, he made a good joke. He said that his mom kind of calls him a psychoanthropologist, which, (laughs) uh, you know, not quite the, not quite the same thing, but, uh, Uh but that, that uh, being out at that convening this week really kind of inspired me.
1: I can see why that's a really cool thing to hear about. And that, that I hope that trickle down effect. Um, you know, makes the impacts to the, all the people who really need it in the schools that do really need it. That's really cool.
0: Absolutely. So lay my wish for you this week is that you have, uh, you know, some good experiences with coconut milk and, uh, you know, other <laughs> non-dairy milk alternatives. Uh-huh. We're just bringing this kind yep. of full circle today. Well, but that's but, my uh,
1: favorite thing is a chai tea latte with oat milk. Yes, got, it.
0: got, it. got I, it. I can do
1: or matcha green tea with coconut milk too. Though. Those are my two Starbucks drinks. I do enjoy.
0: <laughs> I, I do enjoy all things coconut, like a coconut <laughs> pie, right? Like oh uh,
1: yes, or you know. or like the cookie. What is it? Coconut crunch cookies, where they're like. The sugar cookie with the caramel and or the, think, is the is coconut it the, or macaroons.
0: Was mm. it, is it the, uh, the Samoa? What's the Girl Scout yes, cookie that has exactly. the Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah, we can have a whole separate conversation on like stack ranking Girl <laughs> Scout cookies. My mom and, was the uh, cookie
1: mom when I was a Girl Scout. So we always had a garage full of Samoas at some point. <laughs>
0: but I feel like the nomenclature <laughs> of Girl Scout cookies we grew up with is different. It's different now. They've like switched all the names and whatnot. Like it used to be like yeah. the peanut butter patty. And now, yeah. it's, now it's like got some, I don't even know what it's called right now. So what is the peanut
1: butter? Dare I say too, I don't know that the quality is the same either. I know. I And I'm a, you know, I totally support the Girl Scouts. It's not their fault. I don't know what the recipes have changed a little bit, but I don't know if they're as good as they used to be. Ah.
0: Do we do we, we, sound, we sound like we, we sound like angry old people, right? Like ah, I get off my know, lawn type. When I was a boy, the Girl Scout cookies
1: were made with We knew how to make a Samoa. You
0: know, yeah. You know, real whole milk and you know, thin there. mints
1: and all of that, yes. The dosy dough, that's what I like. The peanut butter cookie too, that was good too. Do yeah. they still have these? I feel like when Again, I see I think them it's selling all, out front now of a grocery store, it's like completely different cookies. No, i I need,
0: like, need like a cookie key or a cookie a legend key. that like says here's what the Girl Scout cookie used to be called. Here's what it's called now. I that's need like a, a great tra- idea. <laughs> I need like Duolingo for Girl Scout 50s, right? It's that's what I'm idea. that's what I'm looking for. So all right, Lane. On that, on that note of uh, you know, kind of uh minutia-based mm. banter, why don't we wrap up this latest episode of Mindbeat? Thank you to everyone who has listened as a general reminder. You can find uh, all of the articles, as well as links to information about our speakers, uh, on the um, uh, in the information section of the uh, the, the podcast uh, uh, website, MindBee website. We don't really have a MindBee website, do we, Elaine? We
1: do. We have to get on that.
0: Yeah, we do. We do. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that was a very convoluted explanation of how you can find additional <laughs> information. Go to the ESS website. You'll find great information there. www.effectiveschoolsolutions.com or look for us on Spotify. Look for us on Apple Podcasts, all kinds of other podcast delivery sites, mechanisms, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Thank
1: you. Thank you for being with us. The MindBeat Podcast is a production of Effective School Solutions. MindBeat represents the opinions of Duncan Young, Lane Whitaker and their guests on the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast. If you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, please call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, the SAMHSA National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP or your local healthcare provider.